This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. On each Tuesday of this month, in celebration of Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander voices, we are revisiting conversations from our archives that feature AAPI writers, thinkers, artists, and healers. Today, we are revisiting an episode recorded in October 2016, featuring author and hip-hop journalist Jeff Chang in conversation with novelist and poet Adam Mansbach on the cultural history and future of race in America. Because CIIS's history and identity is indebted to the wisdom traditions of Asian cultures, we are particularly called upon to stand in solidarity with the AAPI community. We hope that in hearing these episodes again or for the very first time, listeners are provided opportunities for connection and healing. Thanks so much to CIIS, the staff, for um, making this possible. I'm going to move this so I can see you. I know, yeah. like you look like <laughs> mums to me. Um, <laughs> Continue, please. Uh, <laughs> uh, very colorful. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming. Um, I, I don't know. Like our, our idea was just to come up here and talk crap like we always do. Um, Things will certainly go off the rails almost immediately. Uh, yeah, but it I always do, does. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I do have a couple of questions for you. Okay. Uh, the last time I interviewed Jeff. And I have a lot of questions for you. Yeah. So. Jeff and I do this fairly often. I sometimes joke that my job is to be in conversation with Jeff Chang, <laughs> um, which as jobs go is, is a great job. I, I would recommend it. I'll let you know if there's an opening that, fill, that uh, needs filling anytime <laughs> soon. Um, yeah. And the last time that we did this a couple of weeks ago, Jeff accused me of immediately just dumping him into the deep end of the pool by asking him a question that would take any rational human being about four hours to answer. And Jeff was able to answer it concisely and brilliantly in about 20 minutes, which <laughs> is still a long time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it a little easier and yeah, give you a simpler. Question. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's, this is where I want to start tonight. All right. um, you know, we, we talk often about the ways in which uh, hip hop, which is in many ways the cultural aesthetic and domain that we both grew up in and came of age in and that has influenced you know the, the art and the politics of our generation our cadre but we don't often drill down about the specifics of how hip-hop has shaped our sensibilities so i want to start a little bit with that because it seems to me that many if not all of the people who to my mind are doing the best and the sharpest work in what we might call secondary or second generation hip hop art forms or forms that hip hop remixed and re-envisioned journalism, pedagogy, activism. We come from a time when to be part of hip hop did not mean to be a passive observer. There was no real conception of hip hop fandom. If you claimed hip hop, it was as a participant who was conversant or expert in more than one of the art forms. You were a DJ, a b-boy, an MC, a graffiti writer, and you were a DJ. I don't know if you rhymed. No. There's no evidence to suggest <laughs> that you rhymed, but I've yeah. seen you sign books and you have a nice hand style. I don't know if you were getting up. I was tagging for a while. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how DJing and crate digging and the whole culture 
of the music and of mixology has affected you as a thinker, as a writer, and maybe as an actor? Okay, I'm going to answer that only if you answer that as well, though. Uh, um, because we don't actually, they don't have Rage's Back here, but the first sentence in Rage's Back is so, it's like a page long, first of all, and it's so hip hop. So, um, but do you also see what I'm saying about these heavy first questions? It's like, that was an easy question. <laughs> um, so I've been thinking a lot about this actually lately because we're getting to be of a certain age, shall we say. Um, we're getting up there. And, uh, you know, we have kids. My kids are uh, my older ones in college and uh, the younger ones um, in high school now. And so you start thinking about these things, especially when they start leaving the nest and all that kind of stuff. Because then you just have a lot of time and like, nobody yell at you. <laughs> you don't have any time, man. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the the... The, the, the model that I had for, I had, okay, so first of all, I'm not a trained, like, writer. I never got a, a, a degree in it. I didn't, um, I didn't take classes in it at all, even. Um, I just kind of faked my way the whole, through the whole thing mm. and started off writing for hip-hop zines in the early 90s, in the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, I actually wrote about graffiti. That was one of my first things because I tagged in high school. and. Um, and, you know, tried to piece a little bit, but, um, I came to Cal and became an activist, but at night I was working at KLX and I was learning how to DJ, um, from people like David D, uh, Neon Leon, uh, Ricky Vincent, uh, all these legendary brother Kaimangi, all these legendary sort of left of the dial types of, um, DJs. And then I moved to. Sacramento to work in the state legislature because I thought I was on a political track, which is a whole nother. And that talk about getting off track. Um, <laughs> I ended up like being so bored and frustrated that I went to UC Davis to start a radio show there. And that's how I met a lot of the guys that became uh, part of what we call the Soul Sides crew. People like DJ Shadow, uh, Black Alicious. If you don't have Black Alicious's new album or Lyrics Born, he's got a new record coming out. Um, man, so good. Um, you know, Latif, the true speaker, these are the folks that actually pushed me to a higher level in terms of writing prose, uh, doing journalism. And so when I had the chance to do Can't Stop, Won't Stop, um, I was pretty well read because, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm, I was always a nerd. I was always a geek, but I, um, really wanted to impress them. Mm -hmm. And so like when I was writing, I thought of it as consciously sampling. I was doing history. And so I was thinking of it as consciously sampling and then trying to flip it. Mm -hmm. And so I thought of sentences in a way as, as a producer might think of, you know, sounds and loops. And, and I was going for that. And I, I read a recent review or something like that that said, can't stop, won't stop was good, but it was kind of overwritten. I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, it probably was, you know, in, in some parts, but I was really trying to go for that, like, that sort of whatever, DJ Premier, Pete Rock, kind of like, mm, big where sounds. you hear, yeah, you hear uh, these samples. And if you go back and you isolate them from the original records, you'd be like, oh, I could see where he got that. But then they're taking it to a whole different kind of level and they're doing drop ins and mixing in the wrong time. So that was my aesthetic. I was mm. trying to impress literally, like, these folks who didn't read, um, <laughs> they were DJs, they were, you know, rhymers, they were graph artists, they were dancers, um, women and men, 
Uh, those are the folks that I was trying to write for. Um, and I think since then, I've come to think a lot more uh, too practically about writing history as as kind of remixing it and and digging in the crates and you know the mm-hmm. whole research process and that kind of thing. So, Hui B was um, a book in which I was like, okay, I've dug in those crates. Let me go and d- dig in my own sort of crates. I like I had all these things that I had saved up from college. I went to UC Berkeley during the Culture Wars. Um, during that period of the culture war, shall we say, right. in the late 80s and early 90s, and uh, UCLA as well. And, um, and I was working for CSU students. And um, so I was very much a product of that, of that era, the 80s and the 90s. Um, and I felt like that part hadn't been written. And I was also maybe short shrifting the impact that my mentors had on me because Can't Stop, Won't Stop, in a way, was like a middle finger to them. You know, it was sort of this it was born out of an argument about generational difference mm-hmm. and this accusation that, uh, you know, people uh, who came up after the civil rights movement, after the black power third world movement here in the Bay area were less than we're never mm-hmm. going to be as good as um, folks who came of age in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was born out of that argument and I was writing against that and I thought, who we be? It's like, but I need to go back to that. And so it was remixing my own kind of, um, yeah, my own coming of age years, I suppose. But, but wait, but you have to answer that too. Well, in terms of, I, we'll, yeah. get, we'll get to that later. But let me, <laughs> let me, let me, so okay. if I understand you correctly, what, one of the things that you're saying is that there's a sense in which who we be is a remix of Can't Stop, Won't Stop. Maybe, yeah. Broadly. Maybe. I mean, yeah, I, it, it certainly came out of this idea of like, what was, what's, what's the missing thing in this in this narrative what was i writing around Mm. and i think i wrote about the culture wars but i didn't write into where i needed to go uh so i feel like for me that was that was uh what i wanted to write into was to try to confront like those days when i was young and so sure of the world and so sure of who i was fighting against um all the time and what's weird is that it's all come back like students that were protesting this past fall that are still like organizing right now, they were raising the exact same arguments and list of demands that we had raised in the eighties and the nineties. And that made me actually kind of sad. Mm. Um, it makes me kind of sad. I, I teach, I'm on a campus every single day. Um, and it makes me sad to face these students that are now my son's ages and, and say, we failed. We didn't, we are leaving you with the same issues that we were fighting against because we weren't able to resolve them um, in any kind of a way. That's interesting because, you know, maybe it is because of the place you want to leave the reader after the journey that is both of these books. But it's striking to me that you say that because both Can't Stop, Won't Stop and Who We Be end on a kind of triumphal note, or at least a hopeful note, an uplifting note. It's interesting because, you know, Can't Stop, Won't Stop definitely was was a triumphal kind of note. Um, Maybe the triumph is like, I finished writing this fucking book finally. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. I mean, it's, you know, like two books in like, whatever, 15 years, you know, like I'm not the fastest rabbit on the track. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, yeah, that was definitely a triumph. <laughs> um, there was definitely like a lot of relief in my household. Um, Short-lived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we're working on another one where I'm working on another one now 
we're working on it because everybody is 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 supporting me in, in doing it but i'm doing another one that's going to be much shorter that is due in march yeah and they're trying to get it out this year um and it's codenamed the polemic right because it's meant to be more of something that's like of the moment i suppose um and so i'm trying to do one one essay a week each week this month which wow. is why i'm a little tired um <laughs> but uh what were we talking about man I was saying, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was saying that you need more lack sleep. sleep. Yeah. yeah, no. I was saying sleep, that yeah. both of the books end on, on a triumphal, triumphal notes, despite what you're saying now about feeling like when your students approach you, you realize that they are fighting the same battles that we tried to fight and it essentially did not win in the '80s and '90s. Well, I think "Who We Be" is kind of a mixed ending. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't really want to give it away for anybody who hasn't read it yet, but it's um, it's meant to be. It, the last section of the book is called Dreaming America, and it's meant to be uh, talking about um, the ways in which we dream uh, of the future. You right. know, in so many ways, like dreaming has been one thing that's been taken away from us um, in our incredibly mediated life lives that we lead now. Um, and so to be able to like have a social imagination, um, a, a sort of you know, whatever national, uh, global sort of, you know, unconscious that's kind of, you know, awaking um, was sort of the idea that I was trying to to get at. But you have to get at sort of what the dreams are of America now, the American dream, so to speak. Right. Um, so there's there are a lot of very dissonant notes in that. Mm -hmm. um, and the last the last ending ending section is is an event that I actually saw happen. Um, but it's meant to, to feel unreal, mm -hmm. um, in a lot of respects. And so there's a, there is, there is a weird kind of dissonant note, I think, to the ending of the book. And it speaks to the kind of dissonant, kind of loudly discursive, polarized environment, um, that we're in now, I mm -hmm. think. Um, and so thank you all for coming and not actually going to watch the debates, um, Although we can all go back to watch it on MSNBC because I'm sure they'll be like replaying all the highlights. You, and stuff you like will, that we'll be getting plenty of sound bites. <laughs> um, that's a good segue yeah. to the next thing I want to ask you. But about. you didn't answer the question though. I wanted to ask you how you. This were is I'm just by the... interviewing you tonight. No, man. no, no, no. It's it's it goes two ways when you're working with me, man. Yeah. So no, tell me, tell me a little bit. Like go the f to sleep, right? Like, you know, this is. It's Are we been... not cursing? Is that what's happening? It it's podcasts. All right, go the fuck to sleep. Thank you. Yeah. Is, um, you know, it's one thing if this is like being printed in the New York Times. They can bleep <laughs> it if they want, but you're Jeff Chang. You can say what the fuck you want. Thanks. Thanks, motherfucker. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I was one, like, go the fuck to sleep. Like, the, the greatest review, I think, from a friend was like, it's a hip-hop parenting book. Right. Who said that? I can't remember, but it was like, I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it is. I was just wondering sort of how that impacted you you started off actually as a poet, right? Mm -hmm. As a spoken word poet in a lot of respects. As an, really as an MC. Before as an that, MC, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. And then when you started writing fiction, mm. uh, and then moving on up to parenting manuals, um, <laughs> like what's the what's the hip hop through line there? The hip hop through line is that I think the th one of the things I've always tried to do in my work is explore kind of you know paradox and complexity on some kind of level and that can take and, and i think the desire to do that comes out of 
first understanding things like hypocrisy, which were first revealed to me through hip hop. Hip hop was the first thing for me at the age of 10 and 11 and 12 growing up in Boston that shined a certain kind of spotlight on uh, whiteness, which was invisible and largely uninterrogated. Um, and hip hop dislocated it from that position of centrality and normality and made it something that you had to grapple with, that I had to grapple with as that anomalous white hip hop kid at parties in an era of Public Enemy and Boogie Down Productions and then X-Clan and Brand Newbie, grappling with what it meant that uh, the white man was the devil, according to Brand Nubian, who were five percenters, and half of my friends were five percenters, and I was crashing on their couches five nights a week and smoking blunts with them. So the personal and the political must have some kind of wiggle space between them or I wouldn't be here. Um, so, you know, hip hop put me in touch with complexity and paradox and race and class and ethnicity and identity and the ways that these things are mutable and weaponized. And that has been, I think, the through line in all my work. So in Angry Black White Boy, I'm writing a satire about race and hip hop and whiteness and the, the limitations of a kind of Afrocentric white kid in the 90s and his ability to be down. And it's a crazy book that takes absurdist turns. The End of the Jews is about the relationships between Black and Jewish artists writ very small, kind of through a peephole throughout much of the 20th century. Rage's Back is about graffiti and art and fathers and sons. Um, the paradox in Go the Fuck to Sleep is very simple. It's the paradox that you can both love your kid to death and be willing to do almost anything to get out of that bedroom after about an hour. You know, like Don Corleone could walk in the room and be like, I'll put the child to sleep, but you may have to do a service for me one day, and that day will never come. You're like, whatever, Don Corleone, just take this baby, you know. We can work out the fine print later. Um, so I think that's the through line, is being willing to try to grapple with those things and being committed to doing it in places that are uncomfortable. Like saying things that are dangerous to say dangerous personally like trying to plumb certain depths and be honest the reason go the fuck to sleep worked ultimately is because it spoke something that was true but had thus far been unacceptable to say in public and it gave people an outlet they felt a certain kind of catharsis um so in a funny way it's very much in keeping with the rest of my work even though it took me 38 minutes to write as opposed to these novels that take years and you know as it turns out, that was a stupid way to spend my time. Um, and the hip-hop element of that, too, is, you know, following your kind of quirky, weird passions down the rabbit hole and seeing where they take you as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny because when the Macklemore record dropped, which was, I don't know, two, three weeks ago now, something like that, I got all these texts from everybody. Nobody was like, yo, you have to hear this song because it's incredible. It was like, yo, you have to hear this song because somebody's going to ask you what you think of it. You know what I mean? Right. And they were right, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, I should say first that um, Jamila Woods, who's the, the vocalist on the song, the singer on the song, is a friend of mine. And so I have some kind of back-channel knowledge of how the song came about, the process by which it was stitched together. Macklemore and Ryan Lewis reached out to Jamila. There was another woman in Seattle uh, who I think... Uh Right, who yeah. you know, I think, who was involved. So there was a, a certain process. Um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting record. It's a frustrating record. It's 
a record that in some ways illustrates like the best and the worst and the possibilities and the limitations of this moment that you're talking about. I mean, just to, I, has, have, have y'all heard the record? Who hasn't heard the record? Okay. It's, it's actually, he made it available for free on iTunes and also on his website. Um, and the first, it's eight minute long, you know, it's Pink Floyd long. And, <laughs> and uh, the first, you know, like two or three minutes of it are sort of him basically feeling really uncomfortable at a Black Lives Matter rally. Right. Um, which... Um, Macklemore being a white rapper from Seattle. A white rapper from Seattle, right. Who's Maybe been around a while that. and has sold a shit ton of records um, and was last in the media for a non-musically related reason when he felt so sad that Kendrick Lamar lost to him at what the Grammys, that he made this very public apology that was widely mocked because it was like, motherfucker, just take your Grammy and go home. Like, Kendrick does not appear to be tripping. Just go put your Grammy on a shelf and shut the fuck up. So, like, you know, there's this, there's this like, Twitter thing, right? White tears. Hashtag white tears. Right. Which is so funny to everybody because it's sort of like, oh, wow, like, here's the guilt thing. Okay, like, we have to, we're awkward now because we don't know how to feel about how we should be reacting to, to this, you know, sort of display of guilt and... And so it's funny to see this hashtag white tears yeah. because it sort of releases that sort of like feeling, that awkward feeling that you have um, when your you know white friend is burying their soul. Mm. Um, and and so you know it's sort of like you have to have the six minutes of of white tears to get the the impact of of Jamila's lyric in a way. Interesting. Um, but you also like on one hand it's interesting to hear Macklemore cycling through all of these different issues identities he's working it out in real time or trying to right so there's his ambivalence and confusion about whether he has a place at a black lives rally right like does he belong here is he in is he stepping over some kind of cultural line that he shouldn't like is, is he violating in order to feel better and absolve himself? And then there's the layer of like, is this song doing the same thing? And then he's occupying other voices and he's taking on the persona of somebody who's essentially saying, I love you. You're the only rapper I listen to. And there's a racial dimension to that. Right. And then there's a critique of other artists, which is sort of a critique of himself, which is kind of, you know, I mean, and there's probably more that I'm forgetting. And it's, yeah, and, is that pretty much it? Pretty much summed it up. You know, and it's on one level, okay. Yeah, I just saved you like eight minutes. Um, you know, and the beat drops out. I mean, he's really feeling himself. Like, like when a rapper goes acapella or acapoco, as we used to say, for like minutes at a time, that's generally speaking a, an egomaniacal thing to do. Right. You know, when you're just like, yo, drop the beat. I just just focus on my voice. Like, right. really, Macklemore? Yeah. You feeling yourself like that? Right. Um, on one hand, there's something inspiring about it. On the other hand, um, he's late to the party, and he should have thought about this shit years ago. And he should is, be further along in his thinking. Macklemore yeah, is like my age, dude. Yeah, but this is Macklemore also white is not a kid too. Like he did white privilege when he was like he did white privilege ten years ago. I agree, but I think that Macklemore is a little too satisfied to end in a place of paralysis. And I would like to see him and his army of advisors 
you know, because he's not in this alone. He ju- but he clearly just started thinking about this pretty recently and hasn't read anything, you know, is oh, not convert. No, I, I, I definitively know that because oh, okay, I know the okay, people who are, he's talking to okay. and getting reading lists from. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay. not to, you know, blow the spot too much, but I don't give a fuck about Macklemore. So, um, I, and I say that not to make a personal critique of him, but to say that, there's a certain self-congratulatory, look at me, I'm paralyzed and I'm complicated and I just want to be given credit and love for that. That is a hallmark of like white engagement with white privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's also, not for nothing, a hallmark of rappers trying to get into that kind of like grown folks demographic. You know, 10 years ago, I said the same thing about Common when he was doing rhymes where he was like, I, I want to be progressive and respectful to women, but I'm also a drunk and an asshole. Like, can I get a pat on the back? And it's like, no, you should really take that further and try to stop being an asshole and maybe like read something or like talk to somebody. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that white privilege among progressive whites is something that still, for the most part, we try to escape from. And we make a flawed equation, which is that the opposite of white privilege is blackness. And that if we can find acceptance in a, in a black community or uh, a diverse community or signal our politics by what we purchase, you know, by the progressive rap CD or whatever, um, then we have jumped the fence and are absolved, right. you know? And I think that paralysis is just, what I'm, what I'm fearful of is that a bunch of young white kids who are very confused about all this stuff and very sincere and very earnest and want sincerely to know whether racism is a thing of the past or the present because kids care about fairness and they don't know if the playing field is even or not. They'd like to think it is. They kind of know it isn't. They, want, they don't want to feel indicted personally. Um, I know this because these kids used to come up to me all the time and like ask me what I think of affirmative action. And I could tell that they thought it would keep them out of college and their parents told them that and all this kind of stuff. Like, There's a real chance, I think, that an army of white kids who are Macklemore fans, who only know who Melly Mel and Grandmaster Kaz are from the Macklemore video, that he didn't even let them rap in, incidentally, which is my other problem with Macklemore. Um, They're going to listen to that song and think that that is the vanguard of white engagement and sort of anti-white privilege work. You know what I mean? That like acknowledging your, your paralysis is as far as you need to take it. That's my problem. Got it. Well, let's move on from Macklemore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's ask you another question. Well, no, um, actually, I want to. I want to just like dwell on. No, you no, no. You see what I, this dude I, is wanna, doing? I want to. I want to move on from Macklemore, but I want to get to the larger question because this is something that I tried to grapple with. I think in Who We Be, and I think I'm still grappling with in my activist work and all this other kind of stuff, which is um, how do you deal with privilege, right? Yeah. And so, for Asian Americans, specifically Asian Americans in the Bay Area. Like there's a certain kind of privilege that we have here in the Bay that we actually have to cop to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that some Asian Americans, a very small number, a uh, very loud number, um, do it very, very, very badly. Mm. Um, the anti-affirmative action suits against uh, Lowell High School. Um, it's a very small minority of folks, but they're very loud and they, you know, they sort of command a lot of attention because they fit a really nice sort of white narrative of like, look, look at the poor minorities who are being like oppressed by, by uh, programs for equality, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for blacks and Latinos, which is all bullshit. Um, And so to me, it's, it's about struggling through um, 
what it means to have uh, uh, an ethical engagement around questions of race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think I say that a lot to, uh, especially my Asian American folks. It's sort of like, I know you grew up like getting spit on, getting mm-hmm. punched, you know, getting, getting uh, treated badly. I know that your parents, you know, um, probably came here and, and, and took a job way below, you know, what they had. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, I know that it's been hard sledding. You know, I know that many, many times there was not enough food to eat and that kind of thing. But at the same time, like, do you think shitting on other folks of color is really the way to go? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to see happen? What kind of world do you want to have? Do you want to live in a place where the, the, all of the best public resources are given a hundred percent to Asian Americans. What kind of world would that look like? Um, and and so, but I but I also realize that a lot of times folks are gonna say stupid things and they're gonna make mistakes in an effort to try to to try to you know be better um, about things. And that's where I appreciate. I think okay, I said I wasn't gonna talk about Macklemore, but that's where I appreciated you know, eight minutes of effort mm. uh, and, you know, many, many hours and that kind of thing before that of working through with uh, Jamila and Hollis and uh, a whole bunch of, you know, Black Lives Matter activists and mm. organizers, particularly in the Seattle area. Um, so I just wanted to say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Totally noted. Yeah, no, totally that's noted. legitimate. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Um, one of the central arguments of who we be is that culture predicts politics that we can look at today's culture, right? Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, just that culture, cultural change precedes political change. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a better way to say it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess my question is what cultural change, two questions, what cultural change predicted and anticipated the crazy political moment that we're in right now Mm -hmm. on the electoral stage? And what cultural changes are percolating right now that are going to predict the political change of the next decade? Um, stuff. I don't, I'm not good at predictions, but what I can say is, and what the book is about in a, in a lot of ways, is the development of the culture wars that we've seen raging you know, now. Um, psh- minute to minute, right, on cable TV. Um, you know, Trump is in the same line. I mean, he's using, we were talking about this, he's using the same lines that, that Richard Nixon used. Mm-hmm. He has, he, at his rallies, he's distributing signs saying the silent majority stands with Trump. Yeah. Right? Um, he sure is. is literally, like, evoking um, George Wallace from back in the day. Yeah. Um, you know, just no on everything. And do you think he knows that or do you think oh, demagoguery think, just is No, no, I think consistent. he I think it's planned. I think yeah. it's absolutely think about it, right? I wonder if this I'm is a guy no, listen, that makes listen. him better or worse that he actually knows that. He knows know? it's it's actually worse. He's planned this, right? If you go back to 2011, you gotta remember, this is the guy who decided seemingly out of nowhere to send investigators to the state of Hawaii to try to uncover Obama's mm. birth certificate. Right. He was the one guy right? Who forced the standing president 
unprecedented in U.S. history to deliver his certificate, his mm -hmm. birth certificate, right. to prove his birthright, right? And I know a lot of folks of color cried over that because it was frustrating, it was humiliating, but Trump did that as a way to explore whether or not he should run for office in 2011 for the 2012 mm -hmm. nomination of the Republican Party. At that particular point, he made the calculation that, A, he, would, he, had, he had lost, right? Obama produced the, the birth certificate. It said Hawaii motherfucker. And he was like, I still won because I forced him to do this. And then he retreated, yeah. you know, because the moment wasn't right. And I think that he came back knowing that he had an opening as an outsider who could mobilize uh, this kind of resentment um, to to move forward in the party, right? To, to take a Republican party and sort of uh, to, to, to completely trash the Republican party elite and have this complete outsider type of candidacy. So I think he plotted this the whole time. I mean, this is the same guy who's in pictures with, you know, the Clintons, uh, with, you know, uh, prominent black leaders, business leaders and that kind of thing. This is a guy who, who wants to be president and will stop at nothing to to go there even if it requires sending the whole u.s into a tailspin mm -hmm. um and so i think that he has studied history i think that he knows like all of the buttons to push in order to kind of move move the needle as they say mm -hmm. um and that's what he's been doing yeah it's interesting too there's a, a series of incredibly disrespectful moments that are all kind of dog whistles for the right that happened in the early years of Obama's presidency that we've almost forgotten about because, you know, the media cycle moves on and there's a new outrage to examine. But, you know, the birth certificate thing was, certainly was one. Representative Joe Wilson standing up and shouting, you lie at the president. Governor Jan Brewer on the tarmac with a finger in his face. Things that would have been inconceivable for any other president in the history of the country, right? Imagine somebody trying to do that shit to W, you know, like they'd be waterboarded immediately. You know what I mean? Like Obama sort of stood for these outrages. We understood as early as, you know, the, the beginning days of his run that there was a there was a tacit understanding among his supporters and his opponents and everybody else. At the moment, he became the angry black man. He was going to lose. There was the speech on race in Philadelphia where he salvages a candidacy that was in dire trouble because of Jeremiah Wright, um, who was put up there as this crazy minister, as opposed to a guy with a profound legacy who was, you know, a, a, one of the most important religious figures in the country. Um, in the speech on race, Obama, among other things, kind of makes a moral equation between institutional racism and white resentment, which allows him in great part to keep those white voters that otherwise would have you know, left his coalition and gone to Hillary or John Edwards. Remember John Edwards? <laughs> John Edwards was the presumed challenger to Hillary in 2007, Till he got a haircut. Till he, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, he was like Bismarck. He said, I need a haircut. <laughs> and he got a haircut and it was all over. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Nah, you <laughs> please. But no, so like, actually, here's a good question for you. Um, th there's a, there's sort of a, um, well, this actually ties back to the whole Macklemore thing, and I'm not going to bring that Macklemore back again. <laughs> but 
it has to do with with like what is it that whites can do around this type of thing? And so you and Kamau Bell yeah. on Twitter launched this hashtag Whites Against Trump, right? We did, yeah. Uh, and it's and it's been uh, a grand success, uh, a total failure. Like what what what's 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 up? It was it was well it it was a success, and I think it may have come and gone, but it was a very interesting moment. Basically, Kamau and I. Um, I'll, I'll I'll rewind for a second. So uh, Jeff Chang put Kamau and I on a panel together about a year ago now. We had only barely known each other until then, um, but we hit it off on the panel and we started to hang out. Uh, we're neighbors in Berkeley. And I find myself increasingly frustrated with the kind of culture of the hot take in media. You know, um, we live obviously in a 24-hour news cycle, spin cycle. Everybody in the public arena is incredibly eager to like air their views on everything. Go on MSNBC and drop 30 seconds of hotness, which I don't know, will change their lives, apparently, from the veracity with which people seem to chase that. Um, there's a real tension in my mind between public and intellectual, and nobody really talks about it because every public intellectual wants to be as public as possible all the time, which leads to a tremendous volume of kind of like hot takes. Something happens in the news cycle and everybody rushes to write about it on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever they can and whenever they can, to the point where I start to feel like, homie, like, what is your real project? Like, what do you do when you're not just responding and putting out material all the time? And it's all very boilerplate, right? Because for the most part, the responses do not delve very deep and they don't expose anything that we didn't already assume you thought about this thing. It's like, I can read the byline and know what the piece is going to say for the most part. So out of a frustration with that and a desire to kind of figure out a new way to do this kind of quick response, hot take thing, Kamau and I started writing pieces uh, jointly, which were like exchanges of emails. And it started with Rachel Doldazal when she was in the news last year, you know, and clearly that was something that needed to be discussed, but I was unsatisfied with everybody's take on it because they seemed fairly na narrow and shallow and I didn't learn anything from reading them. And what the exchange of emails did was we each pushed each other um, to say things and think things that we might not have otherwise known that we thought, but also, and just as importantly, to be funny. You know, Kamau's a funny dude. I try to be a funny dude. And when you're writing emails back and forth, you know, you digress and you go interesting places and you ask each other questions. So we started doing that. And then Kamau had this piece that he put out on Facebook initially, which was like, look, Donald Trump is white people's problem. White people, come get your boy. You know, everybody else has to account for the idiocy of people who have the same, you know, uh, who are, you know, anything happened, you know, like, Muslims are constantly being called on for no real reason to denounce Muslim extremism. If somebody Asian-American pops off with some wild shit, you're going to have to comment on it, denounce them. Ben Carson says some idiotic shit, black people got to answer for him. Kamau was like, let's race white people and make them answer for Trump. And I thought that was a brilliant idea um, for a lot of reasons. And we wrote a long piece about it. And in the course of the piece... You know, and, and, and that's the answer to, like, what can white people do about privilege? Like, well, a little thing you can do is denounce Trump as a white person, take on this kind of, like, he doesn't speak for me thing, because Trump's constituency is the disaffected white working class and the white extremists. Like, 
Trump is insanely popular among straight up white nationalists, as outlined in a New Yorker piece about a year ago. So we put this hashtag together as a joke. I was like, this is all brilliant stuff. You know, this is a great use of white privilege, but like, it's not going to catch on unless we have a meme or a hashtag. I'm no good at that. You good at that? Come out. He's like, nah. I'm like, well, let's try hashtag whites against Trump. And in the Republican debate that happened to happen two days later, come out at the beginning of the debate was like, yo, if you're you know, tweeting about the debate, use whites against Trump. Lo and behold, it goes viral and it becomes the number one trending Twitter hashtag during and after the debate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really, uh, it was amazing, you know? Um, people you- used it in much the way that we, we wanted them to. Denouncing Trump while claiming their whiteness. And, and I think they, people who were doing that felt empowered by it. Um, the people of color who were like listening in and, and tweeting about it seemed largely like enthused and relieved by it. And then about 12 hours later, the like hardcore rock ribbed racist community got a hold of it. And we started getting hate mail. I started getting like, you know, and of course, what, what, what you know, they, they revealed that Whites Against Trump was started by a black and a Jew, which, of course, totally discredits it because the Jews aren't white. You know what I mean? Um, You would think for a group of people who are so terribly concerned about white genocide, they would want to recruit as many people to whiteness as possible. (laughs) You would think they'd be like sending me, you know, recruitment letters. But nah, I'm discredited. Actually, see, and that was what that was maybe what I was going to get to was I thought that the premise of white people come get your boy was right on point. But I also thought the dope thing about it was that it was this joint project. It was like this cross-racial type of project. You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like the one way that we get to the, the, the way we get to 2042, right, which is a year that it all goes to hell, is that <laughs> you, we... You should explain. 2042 is the year that we become a majority minority U.S. country, right? And so it's the year that everybody's like, we're all going to hell, right? And this is like, actually, the, the, like, this is Trump's campaign right here saying, you know, you're all going to hell. You have a chance to do something about it right now, right? You can go after... Uh, those uh, Muslims, you can go after uh, the Black Lives Matter folks, you can go after those undocumented, you know, immigrants, you can go after um, on and on and on, right? Here's mm-hmm. the list of folks that you can go after. Um, the, the politics of racial division, right? And, and so, to me, the only way to actually counter that is not necessarily by only having white folks checking white folks, although white folks really do got to do a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about trying to figure out how we all co-create this together. Like if we're all going to be minorities, we have to figure out how to create a new majority. Right. And that goes electorally, but also goes culturally. Um, and I think that that's like the big bottom line thing in the long run. And so within that, there's all of these different types of issues that we have to work through in our communities um, as well as individually but also as, as one big group of folks trying to struggle through it together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that for so many years, the left has been about like, it's race. No, it's class. No, it's race. No, it's class. It's both. Mm. It's everything. It's all of that. It's all of the above, right? Mm. It's race, class, gender, sexuality. It's everything, right? Um, and I think that at the end of the day, we have to figure this out. We have to create this, this uh, new cultural majority. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I just wanted to... To, to say that, like, mm. I, you guys, like, broke that wide open. And I think that the, the <laughs> uh, I was thinking about it since last time I thought of it, that the whole 
Black Jew thing, you know, add an Asian in there. Yeah. You know, add Latino, add a Native uh, person, add queer people, add women to that. Like, suddenly you've got, you know, everybody against Trump and and the battle is won, I think. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. And of course, we also had well-meaning white people. Well, they were white. I don't know if they were well-meaning, but they were definitely on some like, why not humans against Trump? And I'm like, really, here we go again. Really? Really? <laughs> right, right. You know? It's about rethinking, like, what, how do you get to that? Anyway, we should yeah. probably, like, open questions. it up to questions, yeah, yeah. yeah? What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and if, if anybody wants to, or even make I, comments. Or I also have to say, that with the, every time 2042 comes up, I always am moved to, to, to... And by the way, you know there's going to be a movie. Like, do you know how there's a movie 2012? 20, in there's a world. 2042. <laughs> it's going to look like, uh, you know, like... Yep. Like the Warriors. It's probably going to look like the Warriors. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, 2042 is clearly significant. It's a milestone. It's something that we can look at and look toward with, a, with, with interest and with passion. And I think everything you're saying makes total sense. But I also, as a footnote to it, want to point out that you know, the, the, the history of whiteness and the genius of the perpetuation of whiteness is that it's always changing. And that rather than let itself be subsumed and rather than become minority, whiteness will find new recruits. The Jews didn't used to be white, the Italians, the Irish, Slavic folks. So, you know, 2042 will not come without a struggle. And, you know, Asians might be next on the list. Hey, here's your invitation, Mr. Chang. You're now there's white. A, there's a couple of Chinese Americans that are on that path already. Yeah. yeah. So on that note, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for coming. <laughs> Thanks for staying. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramatush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fork. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.